Amen. Thank you. I get it. It's okay. Y'all go ahead and make yourself comfortable. And if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Peter. We're going to keep going through our series. If you're newish here, we've been going through a series in 1 Peter called Home But Not Home. It's the Apostle Peter speaking to a scattered church on lockdown, distanced from each other, heavy pressure on them, unclear path forward, um, detached from themselves. I mean, it has some striking similarity to where we're at as a church, felt like as a group of leaders that it would be good for us as a people. So if you're in First Peter, I'm going to start off with a question, an odd one, being that I'm a pastor and a church planner for over two decades now, but I'm going to ask it, since everyone in the room has thought it at least once, if not 50 times, and that is, why do we need the local church? Why do we need it? I mean, churches are dying, first of all, so are they really that needed, Any, are they that useful? They're, they're dying faster than they're being planted. Right down the street, there's one that turned into a coffee house here recently, right? They're being turned into skate parks. Restaurants, Airbnbs, breweries, you name it. And I understand that those are just buildings, but they used to hold people, a gathered people. So, there's that. And if COVID has shown us anything, in all honesty, it's that maybe, just maybe, we can grow as Christians and thrive without gathering and connecting. Whether gathering means watching on video or gathering in a room like this. I mean, have you seen all the videos and books and podcasts that you could have instantly? There is not a single question or issue that you might have on your mind that you don't have encyclopedias worth of information. I mean, if growing as a Christian is learning more information, you're set. You're set for free. But in addition to this, the church is cumbersome. It's loaded with hypocrisy, loaded with Troublesome people, needy people, toxic leadership, toxic living rooms. I mean, have I mentioned yet that there's people in the church? So there's that. People are difficult. People are rude. Listen, if you're new to the church, capital C, the church globally, if you're new, you're watching, you're not even in Knoxville, let me give you a little advice. <laughs> Stick around and you'll get burned eventually. You will be triggered. You will get bitter very quick. I can honestly declare that I've been burned more by the church than most people in this room, most people that you'll meet. I've had a lot of wounds, took a long time to heal, some, some wounds still have not healed. I think the, the gathered people, God's saints, have probably brought as many bad memories as anybody. I've lost countless nights of sleep, I've lost a lot of my health over it. And here's the thing, I'm not just a victim, I'm a perpetrator. I've not just felt wounds. I've caused my fair share of wounds. I've not just been disappointed. I've been a great disappointment to other people. Wouldn't it just be better to grow without this cumbersome church? Just me and my favorite podcast and my journal, my own spiritual walk with Jesus. No toxicity, no waste, no hypocrites. No one gets hurt, no one gets annoyed, no one needs to heal, there's no scar tissue, no limping, no inconveniences, no drama, just me. Listen, if you think I'm playing right now, I'm only playing a little bit. <laughs> I know I'm tempted. I'm tempted to just think that the idea of growing alone is maybe better than what we're doing right now. 
if you've known me for any amount of time, you'd know I'm not always the biggest fanboy of the global church. I could be especially harsh. I mean, it's one of the reasons that we planted Legacy Church. Most church planters are disgruntled pastors and, and staffers, right? There's always this sense of, I think we can do it better. I think we could do it healthier. I think we can do it differently. So I am a huge critic. And I can always be caught mocking heresy where I see it. Mocking an ineffective church, struggling with the apostate church in America. I could be particularly difficult on the East Tennessee church, the culture that we have here. But as angry and as put off as I can be, there's really nothing in our cosmos with quite the same divine potential. The common saying is, is the church has a bunch of critics but no rival. And that's true. There is no rival to God's church. None at all. There's no better alternative. God in his brilliance and by his blood created the church. Now I'm still speaking of church, capital C. It's important that you know that, right? Now last week we looked at how we belong to God as exiles, how we belong differently from days of old. But Peter is really quick to switch gears and say, but we also belong to each other. We belong both vertically and we belong horizontally. So how are you and I supposed to belong and love a church that is so often unlovely and so cumbersome? I mean, what about the church has you saying, I don't, don't think I need this to make it. I don't need this to thrive. I don't need this to grow. Maybe I can prosper in the Lord without all of this. Can I just opt out? These are old questions, which is why Peter's having to address them here, Right? I mean, it's not like these people are more well-behaved than we are. <laughs> That's why he's speaking to it. They were already tempted to not belong. They had their reasons. You have yours. That's why it's such a valuable text for us because it does not just show us the beauty of the gospel, the centrality of Christ, but it shows us the brilliance of God to create something by the gospel called the church. And so we're going to be in 1 Peter 1. We're going to pick it up where we left off, the verses 22 into the second chapter. We're going to read just a little bit. This is the word of the Lord. It's going to do all the heavy lifting for us today. He says this, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news or the gospel that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 
but you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It's a big passage. To break it down, main idea of a passage like that is that as exiles, stop working against yourself, stop working against each other with envy and malice and deceit and hypocrisy, as we fit together as a people of God, as living stones that are fit and wedged and perfectly fit together. God found us detached, not part of a spiritual house, but then he takes us, and like a building supply, he fits us in his spiritual house, one in which he is the cornerstone. Right? Cornerstone, all that means is it is the, the first and the most valuable stone in any construction project. It set the lines for the rest of the house. It was at the foundation of the house. Everything was built off of that cornerstone. We, we might use the word foundation as, as, a, as a word. This passage shows you and me how we're supposed to belong together. And hear me, when belonging is not easy. When belonging is not easy. Just because we're living stones that fit together, it doesn't mean that it's an easy fit, right? It's not. I mean, it's easy to belong if what we mean when we say belonging is to be with our best friends. Sure, that's easy. It's harder when the only people you belong to, the only thing you have in common is the gospel that holds us all together. That's a lot harder. I mean, he's talking to them about malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, and he's showing us that belonging wasn't that easy for them either. It's just not easy to be a living stone touching another living stone, even if Christ is our cornerstone. And I'll be honest, to understand this passage best, you've got to look and see how over the ages, from time to time, God would change the way in which he would enter a room. He changes how he brings his presence to people. You go back to the garden, it was a face-to-face arrangement. God would be face-to-face. That's how his presence would be felt. That's how his presence would be seen. That's what Adam and Eve knew. But when the cosmos cratered and it came apart, the face-to-face relationship that mankind would have with God was also broken. In fact, we'd no longer even be able to bear the presence of God. It It would be consuming. It would be unbearable, too weighty. God could have left it there. End of story. End of story. An unapproachable God of justice. Your Bible would have about five pages in it, right? But the gospel is not just that God is just, but that he is full of mercy as well. So since before time began, he started to build this merciful plan of how he would once again bring his presence to his people. Not just his presence, but his face-to-face presence with us. He would restore and even do better than this garden. And the plan that we would see of God bringing his presence to us, we'd see it flicker throughout the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you would see God's presence come and then it would go in episodes. Always in episodes though, right? Never face to face. People couldn't bear it. And it wasn't just for everybody. It was only for select people. Burning bush here, a dream over there, 
an angelic visit over here, a prophetic thing going on over there, miracles over here, but not over there. It was episodic. It would come, it would go. Not everybody would get to be a part of something like that. The presence of God was awesome in those days, but temporary and very consuming. Not for everybody. It would horrify us. That's why we see this weird thing in Exodus, and I don't understand it, but I'm thinking if I was there, I would totally understand it. It says this in, stay where you're at, chapter 20 of Exodus. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, as I would be, I'm sure. And they stood far off and said to Moses, this is curious, they said, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. We can't take it. Moses, we don't always like you, but at least we'll listen to you talk right now. You talk to us. You tell us what he says, but we can't. Tell the thunder and the lightning and the smoke to stop. It's going to crush us. We can't, we can't do it. It was horrifying. It's interesting to me. And then right after that, you'd also see in the Old Testament quite a bit about these two things called a tabernacle and a temple, right? As a young Christian, I blow right through those parts of the Bible because they didn't feel like they had any meaning for me, but these were just structures that would hold the presence of God. The tabernacle was something you could kind of set up and tear down. The temple was something a little bit more semi-permanent. I say semi because it's not really there anymore, but they would hold this glory, but still not face-to-face, still don't have a face-to-face arrangement, still not permanent. You might see clouds and lightning and fire, but again, it's also You couldn't get too close. It wasn't for everybody. It was just for some people on some days under some circumstances. That's the only way you could get close to God's presence. In fact, if you were to barge into the tabernacle and just swagger your way up to the Holy of Holies, God would tase you, straight up put you on the ground right there. People tried and it happened. You just couldn't be an average Joe and have this face-to-face arrangement with God. He would not allow it. After the tabernacle, the temple would come. Again, not permanent. God would come and go in episodes, not face-to-face, and it was only for the ritually clean. Ritually unclean need not apply. This is why we see in 2 Corinthians that even the priests could not bear the presence of God. It says this, or 2 Chronicles, and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Not enough room for the priests There was so much glory of the Lord. There wasn't even any room for a priest to go in there and not be smothered under the weight of God's glory. I want you to see a trend. If you want to understand your Old Testament, here's the trend when it comes to the presence of God. It was episodic, it was overwhelming and unbearable, and it was limited to the ritually clean. That we know. And then Jesus came and absolutely turned it all upside down changed every aspect of this. The word of God would now become flesh and dwell among us. That word dwell means to tabernacle. He would come and tabernacle with us, tent with us. Not with with rods and poles and curtains, but with bones and skin and flesh and culture. He would be with us. In fact, the Bible would go on to show us that Jesus himself would be the perfected temple of God. He is the new temple. This is why he answers people in John 2 by saying, destroy this temple, referring to his body. Destroy this temple, see if I don't raise it up in a few days. I will raise it up. And here's the thing, 
Now he'd be face to face, wouldn't he? He'd be face to face. And his presence would not consume us, but it would empower us. His presence drew everybody, not just the ritually clean, but the prostitute, the tax collector. God's overall plan has always been to bring his face-to-face presence with mankind. That's where he is most glorified. Jesus was a perfection of the tabernacle and the temple. He's the perfect reflection of that. That's why those are in the Bible, friends. When you read through your Bible and you're like, oh, another passage on the tabernacle, I don't really care. That's in the Bible to point your eyes and your gaze towards Christ. This is why this cool thing happens on the day that Jesus was killed on the cross. It says this in Matthew 27, 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Isn't that interesting? The last priest and the last sacrifice would replace the temple itself. Now, you didn't have to be a priest to get into the Holy of Holies. Christ himself is the gateway to the Holy of Holies. Symbolic. Now, fast forward to now. Fast forward to now. God's presence is in his people through his spirit. God's spirit indwells us when we are born again. And Jesus is this new temple. He is our cornerstone. We're hidden away in his spiritual house. He is the foundation that defines everything about how we fit together. This is how God designed it. This was his brilliant plan. His spirit in us, us in Jesus, all in his spiritual house. This is how Paul says it. Paul's going to use some of the similar language that Peter is saying. This is in Ephesians 2, so stay where you're at. He says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Same language. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Same architectural language, right? You and I, if you're in Christ, we are collected and designed to fit together as living stones, spiritual living stones, all around this beautiful cornerstone of Christ himself. And not only is Jesus the centerpiece of this spiritual house, what's interesting is he purchased it with his own life and views no separation between himself and his church. This is important. Don't miss this, okay? This is a very valuable piece of theology when we're talking about the church. Jesus sees no distinction between himself and his church. He sees himself and the church as one and the same. One and the same. This is why we see in Acts 9, Paul gets knocked on his butt from this, this glorious light, and God speaks to him, and falling to the ground, Paul heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul wasn't persecuting Christ. He was persecuting the church. Man, woman, and child. Torture, kill, separate, destroy their businesses. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're doing that to me. To me. Paul says, who are you, Lord? He was probably thinking in his head, please don't say Jesus, please don't say Jesus, please don't say Jesus. And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Christ made no distinction between an attack on the church and an attack on himself. Action point, be careful. Be careful of carelessly throwing grenades at the church as a critic with no intention of reforming 
or investing or contributing. When you do that, you slander Jesus. I'm all about critiquing the church. I'm usually first in line. There's a lot to critique. There's a lot of holes that need to be filled. There's a lot of crooked things that need to be made straight. If you can't critique something, you can't innovate and fix something. I'm all about it. I'm not about being in the posture of, I'll tell you what's wrong with the church and why I'm not a part of it. It's the hypocrisy. It's the dirty people. It's everyone acting like they're clean when they're really not. I, that is a different thing altogether. I'll tell you what the problem with the church is, blah, 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 blah. And that's why I'm not going to be a part of it. Listen, Christ is not nearly as impressed with your faux purity as you are. Not. He's not. I mean, friends, listen, bring your charges against a wandering church. I'll add to them. Lots of stuff you haven't even thought of. Yet a refusal to contribute and commit and invest and serve and reform, it's a statement not against the bride as much as the groom. We need to hear that because it's important for us. We're in the midst of an era, not even a generation, an era where the populace claims to adore Jesus but detest his bride. We're not talking about wicked people but moral people. They have Bibles, they even read pieces of their Bible, and they behave themselves for the most part. But yet there's a, there's a rebellious streak in us where we demand that our interaction with God and his presence happens on our terms. Do you see that in the Old Testament? God has never brought his presence to mankind on our terms. He has brought his presence to mankind on his terms. The entire Old Testament points to this. So listen, I don't, if, if this is you, I don't know what happened to you. I'm sure it's going to sound a lot like some of the stories I have. you got dings and dents that have not popped out yet. I get it. I'm not alone. But there is no version of Christianity where we can adore him yet reject his blood-bought bride. None. Jesus has no alternative for his exiles. In fact, it's not very exile-ish to try to grow alone. That's what the rest of the world's doing. You just fit in with everybody else. Me, myself, and my private spirituality. Being in exile means fitting in with people who are damaged and do damage. That's what it means. That's his plan. Friends, listen, I hate to sound like I'm saying suck it up, so just pretend that I'm not saying that. But God's design is better than our design, and he paid for it with his blood. And Peter is working really hard here to show us the cosmic value and the price of the gathered people of God, his church. He's working really hard. And in the glory of God that is seen through the church is amazing. Paul calls it the manifold wisdom in God. He says it in the third chapter of Ephesians. Stay where you're at. He says that the church is the manifold wisdom of God before the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. When the world sees you tightly fit together and the only thing keeping you close is the gospel, it's amazing. It's amazing, right? Something like this this morning. A, a, a portion of our church gathered together. Or your living rooms, your community groups, or your DNA groups. If the gospel's not tying us together, none of this really works. Let, come on, this shouldn't be working. <laughs> none of you are like each other. We all have differing goals, probably voted differently, spend our money differently, listen to different music, or part of different, this shouldn't work. But it does because of the gospel, this spiritual house that Peter is speaking of. 
And when the world sees us forgive each other and reconcile with each other and serve each other and show each other grace and show each other mercy and investing in each other, they are witnessing the manifold wisdom of God and the gates of hell will not prevail against such a supernatural power like that. Won't happen. Now I know what some of you are thinking, okay, some of you, maybe, maybe Luke, but I'm in the church if I'm saved. I just don't think I need the local church. It's organized religion, and I don't think I need organized religion. I think I'm okay. I'm a part. And that's true. Listen, technically, you're right. If you are born again, if you are born again, you are a member in God's church, capital C. And other believers are your brothers and sisters. Correct. Check mark. High five. Here's the thing, right? Here's the thing. God's idea of church would be broken down into local pieces. That's one of the reasons that we use the distinction of partner instead of member. We're not trying to be nerds about it. I know it sounds nerdy, but we believe that every Christian is a member of the body of God, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're partnered with the local tribe. In fact, oftentimes you're not. But the local church is the global church in context, broken down so that shepherds can care for individuals and people can connect as living stones with each other and then the church can be effective in the context of their community which is why this church here in, on, on, in the Sutherland, in the Marble City area, it would never look like the church planted in South Seymour or San Diego or North Korea. They would look different. They would all look different. And sure, it's organized religion. Why wouldn't it be? How weird is that? I mean, read the book of Acts. It gets more organized the further you get through the book, right? Because when you add people to something, organization, it helps. It helps. It doesn't make it not organic. All those years I was in school for biochemistry, I had to learn about all kinds of things that would fit under the umbrella of what was called organic. You know, organic can mean a bunch of different things. But if you see anything from a molecule all the way up to photosynthesis, it is incredibly, incredibly organized. Remove one piece and see if any of it works. It will not. Organization. The Bible doesn't understand a Christian life without living stones fitting together in a local church, a local church. Paul would be mystified. Peter would be mystified with the Christian that walks around and says, I am a member of God's church, but I just go to a bunch of different churches or I don't go to any church. I'm not committed. I'm not, he wouldn't understand it. They wouldn't understand it. This is why it says in Hebrews 13, the author of Hebrews speaking to a church, says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with the joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. It says in 1 Peter, which is later on in the book that we're in now, so I exhort the elders among you, the pastors, the shepherds, the overseers, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, among you. This is all understands a local context. I mean, if you're not in a local context, whether it's legacy or whatever church you're a part of, if you're not in a local context, who's responsible for you? And do they even know that? Do they even know that? The local church is just the global church broken down to where it finally makes sense, finally makes sense for the average person. 
Listen, as pastors, we can serve anyone we want in the city. But our role is to shepherd those people who are tightly connected, that we know that we're responsible to, and know that we are responsible for them. This does not even mention other aspects of the local church or other passages in your Bible that simply would not work anymore without a local context, like church discipline, a guarded communion table, church planting, multiple gifts expressed, multiple roles and ministries being expressed. None of that could ever work if we were all just bouncing around off of each other with no local context. Now, I knew when I put this sermon together, I was going to be speaking to people. It would be like preaching to the choir. You're here. I mean, obviously, you get the value of the local church. You're sitting here. Or you're watching online right now. You get it, right? You're here. But I know I'm not preaching to the choir because your struggle's still going to be the same. Your struggle. Our temptation, even if you're 1,000% on board, is still going to be the same temptation that anyone else in the room has, and that is to consume the church rather than participate in the church. Your community whether it's your community group or this gathered puddle of people, our temptation will be to treat this in our living rooms as items of consumption rather than items and places and rhythms of participation. You know how, just as well as I do, how easy it can be to be connected and not committed. Easy. Easy to be engaged and not invested. You see, in the, day of, in the days of tabernacles and temples and priests, the priests did all the work. They did everything. Everyone else was passive. Bunch of passengers, right? This, a lot of places are the same today. Not, not everything has changed. Jesus finishes this priesthood. He puts a big exclamation mark on the end of it. And in a sense, we are all empowered as priests, empowered with the presence of God to do the ministry of God. We all have gifts and ministries and abilities to serve one another and grow each other. I mean, listen, there are some people that only you can reach. I can't. There are some convictions that you have that you have alone. Some things resonate with you and they don't resonate with me. And God didn't just give us a variety of of convictions, but he gave some to be apostles and some to be prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. And those are just some of our ministries. It doesn't even mention all of the gifts that we have, administration and pioneering and leadership and discernment and encouragement and teaching and evangelism and faith and giving and hospitality and shepherding and knowledge and prophecy and serving and mercy and wisdom and on and on and on and on. God gives us gifts and ministries and roles and convictions and abilities to contribute differently at different times with different people. We were designed, however, to participate, not consume, not consume. That's one of the reasons we built the church on the back of these missional communities, these calm groups, is because it gives everybody an opportunity to belong differently. It gives everybody an opportunity to share the leadership, to contribute And I hear it all the time. Oh, man, but Luke, I tried those before. Calm groups, missional communities. I've tried those before, and it didn't work. Already gave that a shot. That's a statement of consumption. That's a statement of consumption. Translates to I didn't get the feels that I wanted. I didn't get a best friend in under six weeks. I tried that whole missional community thing. It's almost like we're rating something on an Amazon review. Two stars, didn't work, moving on, right? 
Consumption without contribution, it's gonna run strictly against the gospel grain where Jesus was consumed himself to contribute to us, to give grace to a very undeserving people who didn't fit with him and they definitely don't fit with each other. So the hard application I have is when you look at the church, local church, whether it's gathered or scattered, whether it's gathered like we are here today or it's scattered into our various living room expressions, do you have the question, what will I get, or the question, what will I give? What will I get, or what will I give? See, where a passage like this begs you and me to repent is when we just say in our heart of hearts that our plan is better than God's plan. My plan to be face-to-face with God is better than God's plan to be face-to-face with me. It forces us to repent. It invites us to repent when we hoard our comfort and our time and our talents because people are messy and they hurt us and they throw rocks and it takes a while to heal from it and I've already been hurt and I never want to be hurt again. That's a point of repentance for us. Certainly ministry. Yes, definitely repentance. And when I say contribute, I mean both the gathered church and the scattered church. When you show up to a missional community, are you missed? What do you bring? What do you give? I'm not talking about like chips and salsa, what do you bring, which would always be missed, right? But are you just sitting on couch number three as a passenger? Or are you asking yourself the question, what can I do to develop and nurture this? How can the leadership be shared in this moment? All of our comm group leaders, are going through this module together on shared leadership. What does it look like for there to be a shared aspect of leadership in our living rooms? It, it can't be done with consumption. It can only be done with heavy contribution. And that's just a scattered church. You already heard me this morning bark out the biggest need we have for volunteers for something like this that, that, that we need whether it's running a laptop or holding a kid who's really upset because mom's not there anymore, are you consuming or are you contributing? Or where, this is, this is probably a little bit more closer to home, where have you decided to fit in well with some and remove yourself from others because they are very difficult? Just because you're in a crowd doesn't mean you're in community. Are you, are you not totally fitting with everyone around you and why? These are hard questions, but it's a hard passage. And just being a living stone, that's hard. That's hard. But listen, we are free to fail at this. You're free to be a consumer. You really are. God won't love you any less. Understand that. You're free to be a consumer. You're also free to be sacrificial. You're free to be sacrificial and generous. In fact, I'm just going to say that's where your deepest growth is going to be. You can only grow so much with whatever podcast is the most awesomest podcast right now. You can only grow so much by reading all the same books that the Gospel Coalition tells you to read. You can only grow so much. It's when you are in a living room with other people that are not like you. It's only when you are serving others and they don't even notice that you're serving. No one thanks you for it. That's where some of the deepest growth will be found. And listen, if you're lost, when I say lost, I mean you don't love Jesus. Maybe you're a skeptic. Maybe you're just kind of checking things out. 
I want you to find the several times in this passage that we've gone over how Christ is referred to as the cornerstone. The cornerstone. He is the stone that everything else is measured from. He is the foundation piece. If you do not align with the cornerstone, you don't fit into the spiritual house. You can't kind of be in the thing and kind of not. I just want to remind you he was consumed to contribute grace to us. He is the last priest. He is the last sacrifice. He is the last temple on the very last special day, and he's bidding you to come and die. He's bidding you to come and die and to live again. To live again with a new hope and a new home and a new people. Go ahead and stand with me. We're going to finish this off with just a a glimpse forward, and we're going to take communion together as a church. So listen, if you are just a guest here today, and you would call yourself a Christian, or you know yourself to be a Christian, we invite you into this. You don't have to be a part of Legacy Church to do this, right? If you are not a Christian, or you're not really sure, you're like, I don't know, 40, 60, kind of depends on what kind of a week I'm having. I would just say, don't worry about this right now. I want you to fix your gaze on the Christ that it represents. I would invite you to consider him more than I would invite you to take this, okay? Because this is a moment, communion, is a moment of looking back and remembering. It's a moment of realigning our hearts today. And it is also a moment of looking forward to a totally different banqueting table. You have those? If you need one of these, raise your hand and they will get them to you. And as we look forward, guess what we're going to find? God's renewed face-to-face relationship. Not episodic. There forever, fully invited, will never leave you, won't consume you, will just enchant you, will just draw you deeper. And every second you spend face-to-face with God will be better than the second that was before. And that will happen every single second for eternity. A place of welcome, a place of love, a place of grace. Face-to-face. That's what we celebrate with this. So if you just peel back the the first one and you get to the the little wafer, this is a representation and a symbol of Jesus' broken body, the price tag for his generosity to serve us, right? He was consumed on the cross to contribute grace and life to you and me. So, Father, we thank you for this and what it symbolizes. Your body was broken. It is a real gospel, and we're so thankful We're thankful that we do fit, not just with each other, but we fit with you too. We're not just in any old random structure or not profit or GoFundMe or best friends book club. We're not in something like that. We are in a real spiritual house and you are our cornerstone. So we thank you for this and we take it in your name. And Lord, we thank you for this juice, which is emblematic of your blood, the blood that was spilt to collect us together, to again, fit together. We belong to you vertically. We belong to each other horizontally. And the fact that blood was spilt shows the depth of the price tag to serve each other, to fit, to fit when fitting's not easy. So we thank you, and it's in your name we take this. And Father, we thank you for 
just your Holy Spirit that ties us together. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit that is acting on hearts even now. I know, Lord, that even right now, there are people that are nominally connected, but just barely. There are people that are totally disconnected. There's there's such a range of hearts that your spirit works on individually. It's beautiful how you work. And we just invite you to change our hearts, to minister to us, to pastor us, to change us, to encourage us. Your spirit is welcome here. We are but a piece of your spiritual house, our small, tiny little local context, and yet you are no less here than you are anywhere else. You are good to us and gracious to us and fascinating to us. Your blood built this. It's valuable to you. Lord, help it be as valuable to us. Help us hate what pulls us away from fitting well and help us love opportunities to draw close and tight. And Father, just, just like, like my heart, I pray for the hearts in here that are, that are going to maybe push away from people when they've been dinged or dented or hurt. I get it, I'm there. It hurts so bad you just vow never to be hurt again. I'm not going to fit that tightly again. I got bruises still from the last time. Lord, that you would show us that you know you had bruises. You felt pain. You felt rejection. And in that moment when even the church itself turns on itself, we experience this suffering with you, this moment with you, where you look at us and you say, I get it, I've been there. I was hurt by people that were close to me too abandoned and rejected by people that were close to me too. And yet you are brilliant. You are brilliant to build something with no rival. This is a supernatural thing that you've built. We're not a corporation. You have built a spiritual house with your own blood. And we're so very thankful. So Lord, we pray that as we grow as a church and as we plant new churches, that the world would look on and see Not that we grow, not that we have a cool logo, but they would see how we forgive and reconcile with each other. That they would see how we invest in things in parts of the city that no one is is trying to invest in. They would see us love each other when we act unlovely. They would see us walk forward even though we have nothing in common with each other. Lord, let the world be mystified by the manifold wisdom and grace of God. Lord, we love you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.